Hello, I'm Sam Amond, and this is the 34th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing two giants of the Alash Order, Alaton Bukihanov and Atmet Batersunov. Did you know that we have a Patreon? And if you sign up now, you could listen to this and all future episodes before anyone else. You'll also get access to awesome perks such as access to exclusive episodes, book reviews, your name read at the end of every episode, and other cool perks. Your support will go towards making this channel better by allowing us to cover even more topics at once and across a wide spectrum of platforms, as well as pay researchers and maybe even guest hosts. So please join now. And now it's time for making history. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, please do so. If you are already vaccinated and everyone you know is vaccinated, then you can help address the vaccine disparity. According to a report published by Bloomberg on October 15th, in the United States, we have roughly over 60% of white and Asian communities vaccinated, which is great, but under 50% of black and Hispanic communities are vaccinated. And of course, the, the percentages are different for each state, but either way, this is unacceptable. Picking on my state of Illinois, only 45% of black communities and 46% of Hispanic communities are vaccinated, whereas we have 60% of white communities and 67% of Asian communities who are vaccinated. Part of the issue is the misinformation campaign spread by Fox News and Facebook amongst other sources, but this is also a story of access. If you can help your coworkers or neighbors get the vaccine by taking one of their shifts, picking up their kids and or babysitting, driving them to the vaccine drive, etc., then please do so. Additionally, you can petition both your workplace and your city to make vaccines more available. Maybe your workplace can have a vaccine drive in the office, or they can give employees paid leave to get vaccines, etc. And your city can target these communities in need, creating pop-up vaccination spots in these communities, give companies incentives to ensure their employees are vaccinated, especially now that there is a countrywide federal vaccine mandate. You can also share information about vaccines. For example, in Illinois, you can receive the vaccine if you're undocumented, but many people probably don't know that, so we need to share this information out. Additionally, there's limited access to vaccinations if you are in prison or being held by ICE. The magazine, Borderless Magazine, which is a great magazine you should support, has a great article on how we can help improve vaccine access for the incarcerated, and we'll provide a link in the description. There are a hundred different ways we can solve this problem, but it starts with us. Second, not sure who is following the drama in DC, but basically Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are blocking any attempts at passing bills that will protect our voting rights, the environment, provide citizenship to hundreds of undocumented peoples, and invest in our infrastructure and our people. Indivisible is asking that we call our representatives, email them, send them letters, annoy them on social media, just do everything we can to get them to hear our voice. I would add that sitting outside of their offices, whether in D.C. or in their home states, as well as gathering outside any fundraisers they're attending and or throwing, is also a legitimate tactic, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I'll provide links to indivisible scripts so you know what to say slash write to your representatives, um, but we have to keep the pressure up. Which also brings us to the 2022 elections. 
Indivisible is launching a huge campaign to ensure we keep the House and Senate while increasing our seats. It's called the Give No Ground campaign. Some of the representatives who will be running for re-election are Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Representative Katie Porter in California, Representative Lauren Underwood in my own state, Illinois, Representative Lucy McBath in Georgia, among others. I'll provide a link in the description so you can start getting involved. As we start now, there's going to be a better chance of them holding their seats. I would also add that if you've given up on D.C. and these congressional elections, there are also local elections, which have never been as important as now, especially when we have crazies on school boards in Texas deciding that we need to teach pro-slavery and pro-Nazis and propaganda in our schools to quote-unquote balance out the truth about the Holocaust and the horrors of slavery. So if you want to give the middle finger to D.C., fine, I don't blame you, but that doesn't mean that we're powerless and that doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't be involved in elections. It's just elections on a local level. You don't want to commit to a senator's campaign, then commit to your mayor's campaign or your local DA's campaign or run for school board or election board yourself. The fascists in this country are launching a massive campaign to take over local positions because that's how they're going to normalize their ideology. That's how it starts. You don't want your kids sexually harassed because TERFs are afraid of their gender identity. Then we need people who support the LGBTQ community on school boards. If you want to feel confident that your vote is going to be counted accurately, then we need people who believe in democracy on election boards. We also need mass volunteers to help run the election apparatus, the same number of, people, of volunteers we saw during the last general election. There are things we can do in our local communities that may seem small and pointless, but can have massive effects around the country and even the gates some of the bullshit coming out of D.C., Start with your local indivisible groups as they'll have a good idea of what's going on electorally, mostly because indivisible was created by two staffers from D.C., so they're very election-focused. And through indivisible, you'll find other organizations from there. Finally, Striketober. People are going on strike all over the nation. Some of the biggest strikes are the IATSE film and TV workers, John Deere, and Kellogg. Oh, and also several nurses and hospital staff, such as the Buffalo Hospital staff and the Kaiser Permanent Workers in California and Oregon, as well as several nurses in Florida. The best way we can support these workers is A, don't cross the picket line and don't be a scab. Don't pick up the work that isn't being done because employers are screwing over their employees. Like, this isn't about people not wanting to work. This is employers not willing to take care of their workers, and workers have had enough. Donate to these unions and strikes if you can, find out who the spokesperson or communication person for these strikes are, and follow their asks. Um, if they want us to boycott, great, but only do it if the strikers themselves make the request. Um, don't fall from false information. These workers are going to need food, supplies, and financial and physical support as the strike goes on, and that's where we can step in. Additionally, if you are in a work field that is thinking about unionizing but hasn't, such as writers of any medium and or workers in the tech industry, for example, then go for it. There are plenty of resources on how to unionize, and the first place to start is the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, AFL-CIO website. We'll try and create an information page as well about unionizing and these different strikes on our website. And now it's time to learn about two um, very important Kazakh statesmen and intellectuals. Alakan Bukihanov and Akhmet Batursanov are giants of the Alash Orda and fathers of the Kazakh state and nationalism. Recently, we've been discussing how the Alash Orda, as a government and political entity, negotiated with both the Bolsheviks and the white movement for state autonomy. Today, I want to take a closer look at the leaders themselves. 
Alakan Bukihanov was born on March 5, 1866, and was the grandson of the last Khan of the Buki Horde, who lived mostly in the western part of modern-day Kazakhstan. In the 19th century, it was common for Kazakh fathers to send their sons to Russian schools, especially if they were from wealthy families. Alakan attended the Omsk Technical School and then studied economics at the Forestry Institute in St. Petersburg. Before entering politics, he was part of the Toblosk expedition, which studied the farms of peasant migrants and seems to have left a lasting impression on him. Alaton entered politics by joining the Constitutional Democratic Party in 1905 and became an editor for several different newspapers, including Ertush and Kwasak, which we discussed in our episode Russian Revolution and the Alash Orda. He would try to create a Kazakh Democratic Party, but failed. Instead, he was arrested and fled to Samara. He and other members of the Alash Orda created an uneasy alliance with the Russian party, the Tidets, and Alakan was elected to the Duma in 1906, before it was dissolved by the Tsar. When he wasn't involved in politics, Alakan was dedicated to his newspapers, arguing for Kazakh land rights and greater acceptance of indigenous peoples within politics. A sticking point between Russian officials and the Kazakh people was land ownership and the Kazakh's nomadic nature. The Russians needed the land for their own people, who were migrating to the steppes for better wages and quality of life, but also believed that nomadism was the root of most of the Kazakh's problems. If only they would just settle on the land granted to them by the Russians, then all of their issues would be solved. Alaton, along with Atmet, argued against the Russians' push for Kazakh sedentarism and argued for a gradual transition instead. They blamed the Russians for their lack of understanding of how the Kazakh lifestyle was a response to the climate of the steppe. Alakan would argue in an article in the Kazakh, quote, If we ask what kind of economy is more suitable for Kazakhs, the nomadic or the sedentary, the question is, is incorrectly posed. A more correct question would be, what kind of economy can be practiced under the climatic conditions of the Kazakh steppe? The latter vary from area to area and mostly are not suitable for agricultural work. Only in some northern provinces do the climatic conditions make it possible to sow and reap. The Kazakhs continue wandering, not because they do not want to settle down and farm, or prefer nomadism as an easy form of economy. If the climatic conditions had allowed them to do so, they would have settled a long time ago. He did not equate Kazakh identity with nomadism, but recognized that people could not change their lifestyle or culture overnight. Instead, he argued that the Kazakhs embraced nomadism for scientific reasons, and if the Russians were truly interested in helping Kazakhs succeed, then they needed to provide the tools necessary to adapt to a changing world. He would write, quote, One may compare it with the dressing of some Kazakh in European fashion and sending him to London, where he would either die or, in the absence of any knowledge and relevant experience, work like a slave. If the government is ashamed of our nomadic way of life, it should give us good lands instead of bad, as well as teach us science. Only after that can the government ask Kazakhs to live in cities. If the government is not ashamed of not carrying out all the above-mentioned measures, then the Kazakhs also need not be ashamed of their nomadic way of life. The Kazakhs are wandering not for fun, but in order to graze their animals. Alakan was also a talented historian who crafted a united Kazakh history by collecting and publishing Kazakh folklore, as well as the history of their cultures and traditions. He engaged in literary criticism and analysis while encouraging Kazakh writers to write down their poems and stories, fearful that they would be lost if Kazakhs stuck purely to an oral tradition. 
Alakan even hosted a competition for the first Cossack novel, believing that the Europeans and the rest of the world would not respect the Cossacks unless they had proof of their own literary and cultural tradition. He also believed that the Cossacks should know about the outside world, and so he focused on translating Russian and European scientific literature and fiction into the Cossack language. In 1915, Ala Khan and Ahmed would travel to Petrograd to, peti to petition for the right for Cossacks to fight alongside Russian forces in World War I. They would spend most of the 1916 rebellion trying to convince other Cossacks to fight for Russia, believing it would grant them the respect needed for further rights down the road. And this is very similar to the Jadid position, which we've talked about in our episode, The Central Asian Revolt of 1916. As we've discussed in other episodes, Alakan would help create the Alash autonomy and serve as its president. He was one of the lead negotiators with both the Bolsheviks and the white movement, relying on his old relationship with the cadets to earn white recognition of Cossack autonomy. When the Kolchak coup established General Kolchak as military commander of the Siberian white movement, he dismantled all autonomous states, including the Alash autonomy. The Alash order would turn to the Bolsheviks again, but they were similarly rebuffed. We'll discuss the Red Conquest of the Steppe in other episodes, but by the time the Bolsheviks defeated the Whites, the members of the Alash Order were forced to accept their rule. If they wanted to remain in politics, they had to accept jobs within the Soviet administration. Ala Khan returned to scientific life instead, although he was now a member of the Bolshevik Party. I haven't found a single article that dives deeply into his relationship with the Bolsheviks, but it's been hinted in, of in a bunch of places that Alakhan was not necessarily very fond of the Bolsheviks or even pro-Bolshevik. And when the Alash Order approached the Bolsheviks in the first place, it was a manner of opportunity, but also the fact that the Bolsheviks were the only people talking about granting recognition to other peoples. Um, and we talked about this a bit in our episode, uh, the Alash Order and the Bolsheviks. And so there seems to have been some tension within with Alakhan and the Bolsheviks, um, and that is probably another reason why he decided to return to scientific life instead of um, returning to politics. And as we discuss the Bolshevik takeover, we'll see this both with Alasorda, but also with the Jadids in Turkestan. As the Soviets strengthened their grip on Central Asia, they grew suspicious of indigenous act activists. Because of his past, Alakhan was arrested first in 1926 on the charge of counter-revolutionary activity and sent to the Butyrka prison in Moscow. He was released only to be arrested again in 1928, banished to Moscow in 1930, and arrested for a final time in 1937. He was executed on September 27, 1937, a victim of one of Stalin's many purges. According to historian Sultan Khan Akuli, his last words were, I did not like the Soviet government, but acknowledged it. Ala Khan would not be restored to the public eye until after the Soviet Union fell. And now there is this revival to uh, restore him in, in history and to his proper place as a major historical figure in Kazakh history, as well as to build a very nationalistic narrative around him and around the Alash Orda. He's a very important figure in Kazakh history. I think they just published a new monograph about him. I think in 2016, 2017, when there was like this whole reveal and a bunch of newspapers about it in Kazakhstan. And so he is a very important figure. He and the other members of the Alash Order are very similar to the Jadids because they do focus on this cultural revival. And we've talked about this a number of times in our other episodes, this difference between 
a cultural revival and a cultural modernization, which is pushed by the Alash Uda and the Jadids, and then this idea of traditionalism um, and territorialism and just this anti-reform or anti-anything European, which is what we see with the ulama in Turkestan and then the Basmachi in the Ferdana Valley. And so what's interesting about Ala Khan is he merges the, the he merges the political with the cultural better, I think, than a lot of members in Turkestan. And that's because he is in the Trazit Steppe and he does have access to the cadets and he is able to go to the Duma and he knows Russian. He's been to Russian schools. He kind of works with the Russians all the time as they're all over the steppes. That's kind of part of the problem, right? Is that they're taking over the steppes and the Trazit people, their way of life is being pushed out. And so Ala Khan and Ahmed, as we'll get to in a little bit, are kind of in this interesting position of knowing who you're dealing with, knowing the Russians, and knowing maybe how, or I guess attempting to try and sell their ideas of Kazakh nationalism and Kazakh autonomy in a way the Russians would understand. Um, of course, the tragedy is that it still doesn't work out for him, and he's banished out of public life, and then he is executed by the Soviets. So we think of Ala Khan as this intellectual politician. Um, I think we can think of Ahmed Batursanov as the political intellectual. Ahmed Batursanov is father of the Kazakh language and literature. Born on September 5th, 1872, in the Kostanai region of Kazakhstan. When he was 13, his father and brother were sent to Siberia for attacking a Russian colonel who threatened their village. He attended Russian native schools before graduating from the Orenburg Teachers College in 1895. He became a teacher and taught in country schools for Kazakhs for about a decade and a half before getting involved in politics. Along with Alakon, who he met in 1904 in Omsk, he joined the Constitutional Democrat Party in 1905 and founded several newspapers, including the Kazakh. Also like Alakon, he was arrested in 1909 for uh, political reasons and exiled to Orenburg. He assisted Ala Khan in writing about land rights and highlighting how ill-equipped the Kazakhs were to settle down, but his main focus was on language. He wrote in 1914, The nationality of people who spoke their own language and wrote in their own language will never disappear without creating a person. The most powerful thing that causes the preservation and loss of the nation is language. Kazakh intellectuals were concerned about poor education opportunities available to Kazakh children and utilized the new teaching methods championed by Tatar reformers and the Jadids. Ahmet was particularly concerned about primary education and focused on providing teaching materials, especially in the Kazakh language, to primary schools. When detractors pit on his newspaper, the Kazakh, for writing primarily in Kazakh, he replied, quote, Finally, we would like to tell our brothers preferring the literary language. We are very sorry if you do not like the simple Kazakh language of our newspaper. Newspapers are published for the people and must be close to their readers. The Tartar clergy attempted to assume Kazakh language to the Tartar language, which the Kazakh intellectuals resisted fervently. This inspired Otmet Batursanov to reform the Kazakh language, creating spelling primers and improve the Kazakh alphabet many times. He basically created the modern Kazakh language that we know today. His books were soon used in primary schools, and he published a textbook on the Kazakh language which studied the phonetics, morphology, and syntax of the Kazakh language, as well as a practical guide, and he also published a manual of Kazakh literature and literary criticism. Ahmet, like Alakan, was involved in the creation of the Alash Order Party. He also believed Kazakhs should fight alongside Russians during World War I and help create the Alash autonomy in 1917. 
After the Bolsheviks took over the steppe, he joined the Bolshevik government and served as, as the Commissioner of Population of Kazakh Autonomous Socialist Soviet Republic from 1920 to 1921. He left the government and returned to teaching in 1922, served in several positions such as Chairman of the Research Society for the Kazakh Region, Member of the Academic Center at the Regional People's Commissariat, and the Scientific and Literary Commission of the People's Commissariat of Commerce. He lectured in Orenburg from 1921 to 1925 before transferring to the Kazakh State Pedagogical Institute in Almaty as a professor. He was arrested for the first time on June 2, 1929, and sent to Pertirsky Prison, which is the same prison that Aladon had been sent to when he was first arrested in 1926. Ahmet was released and then arrested again a few years later, and the only reason he was released that time was because Maxim Dorky's wife, E. Peskova, intervened and petitioned for his release. He was arrested for a final time in 1937 and was executed on December 8, 1937, only a few months after Alaton was executed. Like Alaton, Ahmed is a larger-than-life figure in Kazakh history, and there's actually a number of uh, short YouTube videos that have come out of um, the Kazakh government and just Kazakh researchers uh, talking about his life. Like Alaton, Ahmed bridge the political with the cultural, but I, I think his, his most long-lasting contribution is through the cultural and through the language. He really is the father of Kazakh's literal language. It's not just literature or anything like that. He literally created the um, how their language works and how they understand their language, and he, um, he kept it alive. We can think of his efforts as similar to the efforts of the Irish activists who tried to keep Gaelic alive, although I think Ahmed is, was probably more successful. Again, he wasn't rehabilitated until after the Soviet Union fell. So basically what happens is that you would get educated during the purges and then no one would mention you and you'd be wiped out of all like historical references and you were never spoken of again and your family was harassed for the rest of their lives and it was just this miserable thing. And then the wall fell and then slowly all these people who had been killed because they betrayed the state were rehabilitated. And so both of these figures, Alakan and Ahmed, are um, turning out to be the giants of the Alish Order, although there are obviously other members who uh, were Alish Order um, or who were Kazakh who also shaped the future of Turkestan. But we wanted to talk about these two in particular because there is such a revival going on in Kazakhstan and because that they were, they were pillars of the Kazakh community at this time. And they're the ones that are dealing with the Bolsheviks and the whites. And so as these episodes progress and we watch the Bolsheviks take over, we should keep these figures and their other allies in mind because they are the ones that have to basically deal with the aftermath of the Russian Civil War. And they are the ones that have to rebuild their states following the Russian Civil War. And then they are the ones that reap, you know, like quote unquote, reap the benefits of being an activist before Bolshevism was a thing. Because that's their, that ends up being their biggest crime. That's why a number of them are arrested and executed. Because they are not just that they are, you know, unfaithful Bolsheviks, but they dared to think of an autonomous state before communism was a thing. They dared to think of um, indigenous rights before communism was a thing. And that's what makes them dangerous. And we will see this, spoiler, I guess, but we will see this also with, with the Jadids as well. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. Please subscribe and leave a review. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare and Instagram, which is just Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Please join our Patreon 
as I have a lot of big plans for this podcast in 2021 and beyond, and I can't do it without your support. Until next time, get your vaccine, practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.